And so, yes, it has been four weeks since I have been in the pulpit. As I was thinking this morning, um, it feels a little different getting up here. And I, I don't believe I'm going to be um, an hour and a half uh, uh, preaching here this morning. But I, 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 do, I, I did. It was an intentional four weeks out of the pulpit. As you notice, I was only out of service one Sunday, this last Sunday. So I was here thankful to Scott and to Matt and to Dominic for preaching. They did a, a great job in handling God's word. And, and so I'm thankful. Would you give them a hand? We have, we have wonderful men of God here that can handle God's word, and we're thankful for that. Uh, and so it was an intentional time for me to, to step away. I've been feeling led of the Lord to um, do a series uh, on, the, on the culture in which we live in and how should our response be? How should we live? And, and I just want to say this on the outset of this series. None of the things that I'm going to cover that we're going to look at as concerning the culture, American culture that we are looking at um, is anything new in world history. And we're going to look at that week after week. But I feel like we're at a very unique time in our country, a unique time in the church, that it's important for us, it's important for us as leaders to, to speak to the things that are, that are noticeably and clearly not right within our culture and our country. And you need to hear your leaders say these things. You need to hear your leaders speak truth to what we see going on in our world. It's important that you hear that. And there's things that maybe you see and you recognize and you can say that that's not right and, and that's not wrong and that's not moral or biblical. But to have your leader speak and say to you, that is correct, that is not right, that is not moral, that is not biblical. And here's the reason why. And, and, and then also, how do we live? How then shall we live? That's the name of the series, how then shall we live? You need your leaders to speak that truth so that it will empower you to live in a certain way in the middle of this culture. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do this introductory message. I've titled this message, How Did We Get Here? How did we get here in this culture in America? How did we arrive at the, the cultural time that we're in? And, and we're going to unpack what it looks like, but how did we get here? And then I will unpack in this introduction all the different subjects we're going to cover over the next five weeks. And I just want to say this, and as I unfold this introduction about some of the subjects we're going to cover, over the next, not, not this message, but the next three or four weeks, there may be subjects that maybe sometimes you keep your kids in. You know, uh, at the children's church is 6 through 12. Those 5 and under, they're typically already going to be checked in. But those ages 6 through 12, you may want to save up the next two or three weeks. No, 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 honey, you can't sit with me in service. You need to go to kids' church. It's not, there won't be anything I'm going to share that is inappropriate. But it may be subject matter that you're not ready to dialogue with your kids about yet. And so we will unpack that as we go along. But would you pray with me before we jump into this introductory message? Father, I thank you for the privilege of sharing truth with your people. Lord, we believe that truth is founded on your word, not upon my opinion, but upon your word. And God, I ask that, that you would give us all ears that are receptive, that are ready to hear, and that we would be encouraged by the things that we hear. Pray that for those who maybe need to be wakened up and be more alert in the way in which they live uh, in this culture, I pray that you would use this message in this series to do that. And God, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So earlier this month in Plano, Texas, you may have heard in the, in the news, there's a couple of spots, but one in particular in Plano, Texas, they had a, a drag show. And I'm not talking about vehicles. I'm not talking about drag racing. I'm talking about a drag show where men dress up like women and do perverse things. Um, and if you notice, you know, that's not anything new, I mean, you know, in American history or in world history for that to happen. I mean, the Bible addresses it and says that men shouldn't dress like women and women shouldn't dress like men. That's in the Bible, right? So this is nothing new that, there, that, that would take place. But what was interesting to see, not really interesting, that's not the right word. What was sad to see was that not only in Plano, Texas, but, but in San Marcos, Texas. I was in San Marcos last month at a friend's uh, church. They had another one of those shows, and they have these men that are dressed up in women's clothes and gaudy makeup and dancing in immoral type of ways and saying words that are immoral, and, and, they're, doing it in, and they're doing it in front of children, and parents are bringing their kids and sitting them in the middle of all of that, and they're dancing. You saw it, right? You've seen it. You've seen some of those news, those news uh, headlines, and it, it just causes you to think, how have we gotten, how did we get here, right? How did we get here that, that parents would subject their children to that type of behavior and would be cheering on, throwing money, throwing dollar bills and money at these men acting immoral? I mean, some of you may have heard Boston's Children's Hospital, Boston's Children's Hospital, like New Orleans Children's, but this is in Boston. They came out as the first, from their perspective, I'm not sure if it's true, but the first gender uh, transition uh, affirming hospital. And, and you can go to their website, and I went to their website this week, and I copied and pasted what I'm going to read to you. This is from their website. This is Boston Children's Hospital. It says, at Boston's Children's, we are proud to be the home of the first pediatric and adolescent, adolescent, pediatric, adolescent, transgender health program in the United States. The Gender Multispecial Service, GEMS, which has cared for more than 1,000 families to, to, up to date, we believe in a gender, this is important, we're going to talk about this next week, okay, so hang on to this thought, we believe in gender affirmative model of care, into, in a gender affirmative model of care, again, next week we'll talk about that, which supports transgender and gender diverse youth in the gender in which they identify. As the first pediatric center in the country dedicated to the surgical care of transgender patients, we take an interdisciplinary approach from the start to ensure exceptional patient care. Our skilled team includes specialists in plastic surgery, urology, endocrinology, nursing and gender management and social work who collaborate to provide a full suite of surgical options for transgender teens and young adults. Boston's Children's Hospital on their website. Today, you can go find it. How did we get here? Where doctors who are meant and designed by God to protect life and children sign up to mutilate children. Wow. And I'm about to quote somebody. So somebody that you all know is not a Christian. Uh, his name is Bill Maher. You've, you've heard of Bill, Bill Maher? Really vulgar, vile man. On the subject of children, on the subject of abortion, on the subject of pro-life, pro-choice, he's having an interview with Aaron Rodgers. And, 
And, and, and I saw this clip and it just really, uh, because I've been doing a lot of research on these subjects, YouTube just throws me these videos and uh, it's amazing how the algorithm works. And I, when I listened to this, I was just so shocked at the depravity of how did we get here where a human being would say something like this around the subject of abortion and pro-life and pro-choice. Bill Maher said this, I, I don't think all life is precious. Now, this is a direct quote. Okay, I'm quoting him. You can, you can find it. I don't think all life is precious. An unborn life is undeniably becoming a life. But if you're not born, I don't care. We're not going to miss you. I personally am more of a PETA person, the P-E-T-A, the animal rights group. I personally am more of a PETA person. I, I hate to see animals suffer. Wow, how did we, how did we get here? Right? Where that would even be on YouTube and allowed to be seen by other people and be celebrated and affirmed. And I think the height of all of this was demonstrated with Governor Gavin Newsom. You hear about the news with Governor Gavin Newsom and, and he's proud that his state can offer the termination of, of lives before birth. He, he celebrates and wants people to come from all over the country. In fact, he's put billboards all over the country and other states to get women to come in their most vulnerable state to come and to abort and to terminate the baby that's in their womb. And Gavin Newsom, in these billboards, he, he spread across, and you, you may have seen him, it says, need an, an abortion, question mark? California is ready to help. And as a way to solidify his plea for people to come for abortion, he uses the Bible and quotes Jesus. Did you see it? Mark 12, 31, this is what he put on his billboards. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. There is no greater commandment. Wow. Can you, can you believe that? How did we get here? Where a governor of a state would have the audacity to quote Jesus in support of abortion. John MacArthur you may have heard that. He wrote an open letter to Gavin Newsom. I encourage you to, to search that. Search John MacArthur, Gavin Newsom, and you'll find an open letter and read that. That took courage. I'm, I'm thankful for a man like John MacArthur to stand up and speak truth to power. So we could go on and on here. I mean, I, I could spend a whole hours-long message going on, giving you example after example of, of, of how far we've gone as a culture in America displays of immorality and abuse and while certainly immorality and abuse of children is nothing new in human history ancient civilizations we can study would often sacrifice children human sacrifices to children in worship of of pagan gods but how did we get here in america in america in our country how did we get here in our country? There, you know, there was a time in American life when God's people felt more comfortable with the cultural values of the day. So maybe some of you are old enough to remember those days where you used to feel a little more comfortable with the cultural values of the day. The, the, often the movies and the TV shows that, that were on TV in those days in the 30s and the 40s and 50s are often a reflection, were often a reflection of the values of a, of a society. Shows like the Andy Griffith Show. You, know, you, you love Andy Griffith Show? I love the Andy Griffith Show, right? Leave it to Beaver. Father knows best. You go through shows like that, and there were certain built-in Judeo-Christian values that were a part of those shows, and it reflected where the culture is. Now, you can't watch primetime television. 
Right now, streaming services on Netflix, it's pornography. It's pornography, right? But it reflects the cultural values of the day. What is selling, what is getting views, is what the media will pump out into the culture. And so in a general sense, what we saw back then was the way it was. It, 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 it was more, more catering to the biblical Judeo-Christian value, but not anymore. Back then, families were, it, it, these shows, these, these, these movies, families were built upon a biblically-based foundation. Now, now you can't celebrate the traditional biblical marriage without getting pushback. Gender roles were biblically defined in a lot of those shows, a lot of the media that was out then. And it was celebrated. Femininity was celebrated. And modesty was a virtue. Now women will parade themselves in all forms of media, social media, with no clothes on. And here's, a, here's another barometer to look at. A woman choosing to work at home as a wife and a mother was honored in those days, was it not? Now it is seen as backwards. For a woman to not go and get a four-year degree and have a career, it is seen as why would you waste your life? Even in the church, right, right now, me even saying that, some of you are like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Right? You, you can see how far we've come. Masculinity was not seen as toxic in those days. But seen, listen, masculinity was seen as designed by God for the protection of the most vulnerable in our society. That's why men are meant to protect and God gave them high levels of testosterone and strength and muscle mass to be protectors of the most vulnerable women and children in our society. And that what used to be celebrated, now it's seen as toxic. So over the next five weeks, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of the greatest challenges to the biblical view of, of morality and marriage and family. We're going to look at the greatest challenges to God's plan for human flourishing. I believe God's word gives us the clearest definition of what humans need to flourish in life, in all aspects of life. And so this is what we're going to look at over the next five weeks. We're going to look at the image of God under assault in the murder of unborn babies. And what I want to do is, next week, I want to look at two topics, abortion and the transgender movement. And we want to look at the, the image of God under assault in kids, in kids, pre-born and then out of the womb. And what I want to do is, in, in that message, I, I, want to, I, want to, I want to talk about what the Bible says, but then I want to talk about what the world is saying. What are these people, what are the arguments for gender identity? What are the arguments for abortion? I want to look at those arguments. I want us to talk about those arguments, and I want to show you why they're not right. Okay? And then the next week, we're going to look at the assault of God, the, excuse me, the assault uh, of the enemy on God's image through pornography, sexual sin, adultery, fornication, all forms of sexual sin. I want to look at the, the assault on God's image through the redefining of marriage between one man and one woman. We're going to look at that. Week four, we're going to look at the image of God under assault through partiality and racism. A very, still a very divided country. We want to look at that subject.
In week five, we want to talk about the relationship between the church and the state, God and government, Christians and politics. What kind of authority do we give the state in determining how and when we worship? Hello, 2020. What about the role of the church to speak to the political issues of the day? And then we will finish in week six looking at the fact that the gospel we preach is an exclusive gospel. The gospel is for everyone, but not everyone will believe because the message will offend. And we want to look in week six, talking about, wrapping up all of these things that we've talked about, wrapped up talking about that we have a message to preach to the world. And it is a message that they will not like. It is a message that we will hate, but we are, that they will hate, but we are called to preach it. And that's how we will end. So for this introductory message, we have three questions. How did we get here? Will we take a stand, and where does our hope come from? How did we get here? Will we take a stand, and where does our hope come from? And as we seek to answer these questions in this first message, I want us to to think about God's people in Babylon. When did God's people dwell in Babylon? When were they taken into captivity in Babylon? You see the recording of that primarily in in, in the book of Daniel. You see Daniel and, and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, four Uh, Hebrew children, four Hebrew young men were taken in captivity. And and you see, God's people had rebelled against God, and God raised up the Babylonian king to come and capture Judah and carry off God's people into captivity. We see this. Look at at, uh, Daniel, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 25, 8 uh, through 11. This is the pronouncement of judgment and how God will raise up Nebuchadnezzar. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from, I I will banish them a voice of mirth and a voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon, God's people shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And we see that history unfold in the book of Daniel. So first question, how did we get here? And we wanna parallel God's people in Babylon And God's people today living in a modern-day Babylon. You know, Babylon in ancient times is very similar to the culture in which we live in now. I would go as far as to say that we are living in a modern-day Babylon. God's people are living in Babylon today. The first seven chapters of Daniel introduced those four Hebrew young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were dropped into a culture that was not monotheistic. Monotheist, monotheism is the, is the view that there is one God. And as Jews, they were raised to believe rightly uh, what the Bible says, what the Old Testament Torah says, that, that God is one. There is one true God. And so these four young men were dropped into a culture where It was not monotheism, it was polytheism. There was many, many gods, a pantheon of gods. They were brought captive into this type of society. And there were were these worldviews that they were not accustomed to, that they were were dropped into and they had to deal with different worldviews. And a worldview is a way in which you see the world. It's a way in which you see the world. So so what are the worldviews that have influenced our country's continual 
decline into open rebellion. We're going to answer the question, how did we get here? Well, I believe it's because there are these worldviews that have influenced our country over almost 250 years to get us to the point where we are right now, where we openly rebel against God. And a worldview simply, a worldview simply is, is, it's like a glue. A worldview, a way you see the world, a lens with which you see the world, is like a glue that is a unifying system of thought. So it unifies people together to see the world a certain way, right? And every society will have multiple competing worldviews. But there, there, there will be a, an ultimate dominant worldview that will rise to the surface as a whole. So I want to talk about four real quickly. This is going to be like a, a, um, a little class here, okay? So four main worldviews that are like a downward spiral that I believe have influenced American culture. So here's the first one, secularism. Secularism, I would define it as as a view that trying to define life, defining life apart from the sacred, defining life apart from God. This has influenced our world. Do you see secularism all around you today? And with, with, with the minds that God has given scientists, with the minds that God has given us, the brilliant ability to be able to think and to reason, modern science has developed and sought to explain life apart from God. This is secularism, to see the world around us through a lens of secularism and not sacred, secular and earthly and not holy, not seeing God as the origin of all things. Secular humanists want to define life through the lens of Darwin and evolution, through the lens of time and chance, that all that we see, the complexities of all of creation, is not the result, as God's word says, of a creator, divine origin, but time and chance is what brought us here. A big bang and evolution over billions of years and, and here we are and all these complexities and, and how the, 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 the universe and all the galaxies that, that make up this universe are, are, are intricately uh, pieced together and are, are functioning without, without disruption. The world right now, this earth is spinning around, spinning around and it's on its axis is tilted perfectly to where we don't burn up or freeze up. An evolutionary atheist scientist wants, uh, want us to believe that that just happened to be that way over billions of years, right? Secularism, through the lens of secularism, what they want to do is they want to explain ultimate meaning apart from religion, ultimate meaning apart from religion. That is the secular view, ultimate meaning in life. Why are we here? Why do we exist? The secularist says it's not because of God. The pinnacle of the secularist movement in our country, I think, culminated on April 8th, 1966. Time Magazine put out a cover and it said, is God dead? Is God dead? Did you, some of you maybe, did anybody, has anybody, did anybody here actually hold that magazine? See it when it came out? Yeah? I think there are probably some that are old enough to have seen that. Yes, I see some hands back there. Is God dead? What, what, what was the bigger question behind is God dead? The bigger question of the secularists is this. Has scientific advancement killed God? Has scientific advancement killed God? Have we gotten so far as a secular society with the scientific method, with all that we can observe, have we actually killed God? We don't need God anymore. That's the secular worldview. Through the lens of secularism, though, life has no ultimate meaning. 
And the meaning of our lives can be summed up in the dates on our tombstone. Born 1981, die, died 2071. You know, I was born in 81. Hopefully I die in 2071. That's 90 years. And, 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 and through the lens of secularism, we live between two points with a beginning and an ending, but no ultimate meaning. That's the secularist view. The goal in secularism then if we want to live life without God is, is to minimize pain and suffering for a season. Embracing secularism is embracing a philosophy of despair. And despair, you see what despair does in people's lives when you separate ultimate meaning from God and a creator. What happens? Despair comes and despair leads people to do what? To medicate, to medicate through drugs, through sex, through alcohol, through crime, through power, through money. How did we get here? We're a secular society. That's how we got here. And also, we are a pluralistic society. This builds, here's the next worldview that is competing, right? Pluralism. What is pluralism? Pluralism says all roads lead to the same destination. So the secularist becomes a pluralist. They believe in pluralism. This was Babylon. And, and here's what pluralism says. Pluralism says all worldviews are equally true. Now track with me. We are in a pluralistic society. And pluralism says all worldviews are equally true. Now one aspect of pluralism in America is positive. And, and here's the one positive aspect of it is that we are a country that does tolerate the free belief and speech of everyone's worldview. Aren't you grateful for that? Hey, People may not come here and listen to this, and there are those who I know that would not want to hear this. And, 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 and thankfully, right now in our country, for the time being, I can say what I believe is true and not be thrown in jail. But that's not the pluralism of American culture. The pluralism of American culture is this. It's, 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 it's true pluralism has its ultimate effect. We don't just tolerate obvious lies we celebrate them all as equally true. I have truth and you have truth and you have your version of the truth and your God and your God and your God and all of them are true. This is pluralism. Do you see that in our world today? But pluralism turns into chaos. It breaks, society breaks down under the umbrella of pluralism. Why? Because if everything is true, then nothing is true. If everything is true, then that means nothing is true. Everything can't be true. There has to be truth and error. There has to be light and darkness, right? This is pluralism. Just like ancient Babylon, America is filled with a multiplicity of gods and worldviews. So you have secularism, pluralism. The next worldview that naturally flows in this downward spiral is relativism. What is relativism? Relativism is the defining life apart from absolute truth. So we're secular. We don't need God. Science has killed God. We're pluralistic. I'm okay with what you believe in. I think, who am I to say that you're wrong? I can't tell you you're wrong. And you can't tell me I'm wrong. And so where does that lead us? 
It leads us to be relative. I love what R.C. Sproul says in his book, Making a Difference. It was a book that I read, and I commend that book to you, Making a Difference by R.C. Sproul. It really helped me in preparation for this message. This is what he says in his book. He says, in a relativistic worldview, we have no fixed standards by which to measure or to judge values, truth, purpose, or beauty. Once we embrace relativism, we live in a world of ultimate chaos. Isn't that what it looks like today? Am I the only one? Wow. And because of this crisis of truth, we find ourselves in, listen, there is a vacuum that must be filled. Secularists become pluralist, and pluralists become relativist, and there's really ultimately no truth, and, and it just breaks down the very fabric and the foundations of our society, and it creates a vacuum waiting for someone to come in to bring a foundation. And it will happen. There will be a vacuum that must be filled. An absolute authority must make the rules. If we don't want God in our society, an absolute authority must make the rules. There will be rules in a society. If man does not want God, what does man get if they don't want God? They get the state. They get the state. And in that vacuum, the state will step up. And this is what becomes the ultimate good. The good of the state becomes the ultimate good for humanity. The state says, we are going to be united. The government, the state, we're going to be united. And and how are we going to be united? We're going to be united by going to the same schools, by learning the same things, by saying the same words, Cancel culture, woke language, right? You know, an extreme end of that is North Korea. What happens in North Korea? Everybody's the same. Everyone thinks the same, goes to the same schools, learns the same things, says the right things, doesn't say things they shouldn't say. North Korea, it's this image of a dictator coming and saying, I'm going to take that power, right? And so some, some people may say, well, that's an extreme example. You know, that, that won't ever happen here in America. That, that's not the result of a dictator. That, in North Korea, that's not the result of a dictator. It is re- the result of pluralism. It's the result of pluralism. When you remove God as a central transcendent factor of our existence, someone or something will take his place. You've heard the phrase, might makes Might makes right, right? So this is the progression. Secularism, pluralism, relativism. And then now, here's the final descent, hedonism, hedonism. What's hedonism? Hedonism is defining life with pleasure. To be a hedonist is that you're seeking after pleasure. Defining life with pleasure as the central purpose. Defining life with pleasure as a central purpose. Life is all about pleasure. We don't have God as a central authority. There's really no ultimate foundation for truth. So as 1 Corinthians 15, 32 says, if the resurrection isn't true, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we, we die. We are a country of hedonists, are we not? The dead are not raised. If, is God dead? Did science kill God? If there's no ultimate meaning in life and, and all there is is a here and now, then let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry for tomorrow we die. 
What's that song? That poetic song? I went, what is that? Some seconds on a bull man named Fu Manchu. I love deeper and I look sweet. Come on, sing it with me. Y'all know the song. I live like I was dying. And great, great poetry. I don't know who wrote that. That's the, that's, that, that, that's the American view. We're all going to die. And it's true, we're all going to die. But when you disconnect the ultimate meaning and reality of life being centered on God as our creator, then all you have is here and now and riding Fu Manchu and skydiving and mountain climbing and stocking up on my 401k and hoping I live long enough to spend it all and my kids and grandkids don't take it and waste it. That's all that life is. We just become hedonists and we live for pleasure. How did we become a nation of hedonists? Pleasure seekers. I I like pleasure as much as the next guy. But pleasure disconnected from ultimate meaning destroys people. Pleasure disconnected from ultimate meaning destroys people. Ultimate reality of morality, it destroys people. How did we become a nation of people whose primary aim in life is pleasure at the expense of others? It started when we began to define our existence apart from our creator. Who needs God? We don't need God. You can't pray to God in school. Let's just take that out. We're going to remove God. We don't need God. Look around our country today. The pursuit of pleasure is the, highest form of mora- is the highest form of morality. That's the new morality of today. Have as much pleasure as you possibly can before your dates get engraved on your tombstone. So here we are. That's how we got here. That's a short version, a big picture view. You guys are still tracking with me? I know that was some deep, heady stuff there. But I want you to see, this is how we got here. This is really how we got here. It, 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 these are these worldviews that are competing all around you. The movies, the TV shows, the music. The, you'll see secularism and pluralism and, and, and relativism and hedonism all built in. I want you to start thinking about them when you're consuming the media that you consume. It's everywhere. Just stop and think. See how God has been removed from those things. And all you have are all these competing worldviews. So the next question Let's move back to Hebrew days. Let's move back to ancient Babylon. Let's shift in our brain. How did we get here? Here's how we got here. Well, now let's shift in our brain back to ancient Babylon, Daniel's day. What's the next question? Will we take a stand? Will we take a stand? Let's look back to the book of Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and Daniel, they were faced with the decision. Will they stand for righteousness or will they bow? In the middle of a pluralistic society, Would they, as believers in the one true God, the God of creation, would they stand in the middle of that Babylon? And that's the question for us today. Will we stand or will we we bow? Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, the province of Babylon, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Wow, did you catch that? What's happening? Idolatry. 
That's what's happening. Worshiping something made with human hands instead of worshiping the one who made human hands. That's what's happening. This is idolatry. Babylonian culture had thousands of gods. Thousands of gods. This was pluralism at its pinnacle. They had the sun god, the moon god, the star god, the tree god. We got tree worshipers here today too, don't we? Within our culture. The animal worshipers, like Bill Maher. A pantheon of gods, limitless gods. Golf gods. Golf gods don't work for me. I quit praying to them because they don't, they don't help my golf ball. <laughs> the king in his pride sets up an image that represents himself. 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. And he says, bow down to it and worship it or you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And you know, what's interesting is the king had leaders that that recognized, that knew that Daniel, and, or at least these three in particular, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were, they were checking these guys out, and they noticed that they weren't bowing down. Look and, l- listen to these leaders coming to rat out God's people. It says, Daniel 3, verse 12, there are certain Jews, uh, th- these leaders are telling the king, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their, those are their Babylonian names. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Okay, so they came and they told the king, hey, there's some, there's some Hebrew guys, there's some Hebrew young men. They're not doing what you said, king. What are you going to do about it? So I want us to think about this just for a moment. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think about those three young men, young men, teenagers. Think about them. Every day, twice a day, they would recite something that would remind them who God is. Do you know what that is? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They were taught that there is one God and it is not a golden statue. There is one God, the God, the God of creation, the God who made the sun, the moon, and the stars. And they didn't worship the creation of God. They worshiped the God of creation. So think about it every day, twice a day, before exile, before they were dropped into polytheism and pluralism and all these different competing worldviews. And here they are. And they could have easily thought, ah, I don't like fire. And that is really hot. And the king turned it up so many times hotter because of his fury and his anger. Can you imagine just dropped into this culture and what are they going to do? What decision are they going to make? What's amazing is that they wouldn't bow. They wouldn't worship a false god, an image made by human hands. They wouldn't call a created thing a god. So these three young men, though, they could have easily came up with reasonable arguments. You know, we all come up with reasonable arguments for why we'll compromise our convictions, don't we? I think these guys would have had the same temptation. Maybe it would have been something like this. Just this one time, we're far from home and no one will know. Just this once, no one's going to know. Everyone else is doing it. We'll just be one among many and be lost in the crowd. Just be quick, just a, just a quick little, quick little dip, quick little dip and get up. What about this reason? It's not really a God. 
So bowing down doesn't mean anything. It's, you know, it's, just not, it's not really a God. So it doesn't mean anything. What about this? If we don't bow down, we won't die. Besides, if we die, we won't be useful to God anymore. And God wants us useful, doesn't he? So let's bow. Right? Reasonable. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Pressure of the culture dropped into Babylonian culture. You can, you, this is our tension. This is their tension, right? What is the message of the three young men to the angry king? Are they just going to bow down real quickly? Are they just going to get up? No one's going to really notice us among the many. What do they say? Look back at Daniel, Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We're not here to talk to you, debate with you. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not. I would love to say that I would have that same type of courage. Wouldn't wouldn't you want the type of courage? The but if not courage. It's easy to say I won't bow when I say he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Hoorah! But if not, let it be known to you, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. We will not bow. We're not going to compromise our convictions living in Babylon. Behold, the Lord our God, he is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Our God can rescue, but even if he doesn't, he, we will not bow. They know God can rescue them, but they don't assume that he will, and yet they still obey him. You know, it reminds me also of Acts chapter 5. You remember the apostles going around doing miracles and preaching the gospel and stirring up trouble in Acts 5, and the rulers of the Sanhedrin, they get the apostles and they warn them and they say, if you don't stop speaking in the name of Jesus, we're going to throw you in prison and lock you in chains. And what did they say? We must obey God rather than man. Do what you do, but we preach Christ. Do what you do, but we won't bow. And the same question remains for us today, my brothers and sisters. Same question. Will we stand or will, and will we only bow to the one true God? The church must be the voice of righteousness in the culture. It's what we were designed for. We must speak the obvi- to the obvious evil in our society. Obvious immorality must be spoken about. The church cannot go along like everything is okay in the world and just preach unhelpful self-help messages. The church cannot sleepwalk through this critical time in our culture and just seek to entertain non-believers. We must speak truth to the culture and call them to repentance and freedom and healing. Today, what's amazing is we are even seeing those who would call themselves non-religious are recognizing that something is terribly wrong with with the direction of our country. But we must be the ones who explain 
what is wrong. How did we get here? We must be the ones, because we have the ultimate worldview, the ultimate lens that can make sense of the world. We must be the ones who explain what is wrong and how people can be set free. We must point to the biblical worldview concerning humanity. We must call sin, sin, and evil, evil. We must walk in righteousness. We must walk in righteousness. And we must preach with compassion. We must preach the gospel without apologies. Listen, listen, because there will come a day, just like in Babylonian days, where you bow, where you bow, here's the image, here's the standard, here's the new rule, might makes right, here, here is the thing that you can say and you can't say, the day will come, there will come a day when the powers that be will seek to silence the church. So the question is, is will we stand or will we, or will, will we bow? It's another important question. How can you know if you really believe what you say you believe? Do you want to know how you can know if you really believe what you say you believe? This is for me and for you, for all of us. Here's how you know. It's how you live when pressure is applied to your life. That demonstrates what we really believe. When pressure is applied to our life. When cancer Disease, divorce, heartache, pain, suffering. What do we really believe? Do we believe that God is just, he's just up there like a genie in the bottle. He, his, his, the gospel is that he's to give us all that we ever want and need and, and prevent us from ever suffering and walking through pain. And if that's what we believe, then under pressure, that God doesn't work. Right? That's another worldview. So how did we get here? Right, we looked at that. That's the first question. Will we take a stand? Here's the third question. I'm almost ready for the pumpkin patch. Are you guys ready for the pumpkin patch and a hamburger and a jambalaya? Here's the third question. I think it's an obvious question. Where does our hope come from? Because here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to leave here angry at the world. Right? Where does the hope come from? To answer this question, let's look back to Daniel. So God, there's another chapter. Now, now Daniel comes into the frame here. God, God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't he? Fourth man in the fire rescued them. Well, Daniel comes on the scene. And the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream, a series of dreams, and nobody could interpret them. And, and Daniel's the one who can interpret them. And Daniel rebukes the king. Daniel speaks truth to power. You know, it's good for us as Christians to speak truth to power, right? We're going to talk about that in week four or five of this series. And he interprets the king, but, and he tells the king, you better repent, but the king doesn't listen. Look what happens. Where's our hope come from? It comes from, from, from Daniel 4, verse 28 through 32. All this came upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, O pagan king, 
until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Wow. Where does our hope come from? Our hope comes from the realization that God is the one who is in charge. He is the one who can humble the king of Babylon. Our hope comes from a settled confidence that God rules the affairs of man. Another question for you. It's a challenging one. So where are you going to place your hope? In the most high God who rules the affairs of man? Who sets rulers up and sets them down? Where are you going to place your hope? Here's, here's, here's a couple of other questions. A liberal king of Babylon or a conservative king of Babylon? Who are you going to place your hope in? I choose God. I choose God. We'll talk about that in week five. Hang tight. No matter how dark a country gets, no matter how perverse the world becomes, our hope comes from the realization that the God of Scripture is ruling and reigning right now. He sets rulers into place and he removes anyone he chooses. How often do we get discouraged when it seems like the people in our world are not running towards God? but are actively trying to ignore his reality. They're secularists. Just, God, why God? I don't need God. I don't need God. I have all that I need. I have my job and my money and my career, and I got my kids, and I live for my kids, and I live for my family, and I have all that I need. And White picket fence, an American dream. I'm pursuing it, the pursuit of happiness it can be discouraging. We look at a world all around us, and there's a world of secularists that are ignoring the divine and the sacred. How many houses did you pass today coming from Thibodeau and from Bayou, from Bayou Terrebonne and all the directions you came from? How many houses did you pass where people were content to not come and honor the one true God? Right? Notice what happened to the great king of Babylon after his humiliation. Where's our hope come from? Here's the next level of our hope. God's in charge, but also God can humble, God can, God can restore. Look at Daniel 4. This is, after, this is after the seven years where King Nebuchadnezzar crawled on the ground like an animal and ate grass and had nails that were long like, like, like eagles' nails and falcons' talons. Look what it says at the end of, the, of those days, Daniel 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven the same one built the idol 
bow down to the idol. There's multiple gods. I extol and worship the king of heaven for all his works are right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. Where's our hope come from? Living in Babylon, the hope comes from that the great king of Babylon is acknowledging that there is a king of heaven and that the king of heaven is the one who's really in charge. Uh, the, the hope comes from the realization that God can humble and save the most proud. Do you believe that? God can humble and save the most proud. That person that you think they're, they're, they're never going to repent, they're never going to return. God can humble and save the most proud. I love what Alistair Begg says on this point. I commend to you another book, Brave by Faith. Another book that I read as a part of preparing this message, Brave by Faith. Alistair Begg, such a great book. A little short book. Listen to what he says about this point. He says, I think that in many places in the West, God has become smaller in his church's estimation as well as, in the, as well as in the cultures. We doubt his power. We doubt his control. We doubt his ability to grow his kingdom by bringing people to faith. We grow angry or fearful as though the modern forces of secularism might overcome the creator God or cause the end of his church. And so we grow silent in our evangelism. Wow, think about what he just said there. You see, what I don't want for us to do is to grow angry at our culture. They're our mission field. We need to, we need to understand where this came from and how did we get here be able to, so we won't be deceived by the cultural lies, so that we can be armed with the truth to be able to give them hope in their life. We can't grow angry or fearful. The, the, the king of Babylon can't destroy the church. The government can't come and shut us down. They can't stop the church. The church, the Bible says, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so we don't need to be fearful. You don't need to, 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 to fill yourselves with the headlines that I read at the beginning of my message every single day watching Fox News every day and all the bad things going on and cause it to, for you to be hateful, uh, 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 um, angry at the world and fearful of the future. We must remember that God's in charge and God can save. We must acknowledge the evil of our society. How shall we live? We must acknowledge the evil of our society. That doesn't change who's ruling and reigning. Taking a stand and not compromising biblical truth is not our only responsibility. We're called to be in the world but not of it. We're called to make a difference in every sphere that God has called us. And so as I conclude here today, our God wins. Our God wins. And because we are a part of his kingdom, we share in his victory. We share in his victory. And we are called to declare that victory to everyone who will listen. What are we called to, to declare to the world? What are we called to declare? I love Isaiah 9. This is what we're called to, to declare. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Babylon is destroyed. Rome is destroyed. Countries will come and will go. But of his government and his kingdom, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. We're called to declare for to us a child is born. The incarnation. Christ came to be your everlasting father, your wonderful counselor, your prince of peace, your mighty God. Amen. It's our message. It's our decree. How did we get here? Will we stand? Where's our hope? Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in God. He's ruling. He's reigning. And our mission, our mission is to declare to the world, Christ is born. He died and he was raised. So you can be forgiven and healed. Amen. And would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word today. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. Though we live in a postmodern world, a post-Christian culture, Lord, here we are. Here we are. You've placed us here. You've called us to this day. Maybe some of us wouldn't have chosen to live here. Maybe we're fearful to raise kids today, but God, you've called us here. You've planted us here. This is our time in human history that you want us to declare the glory of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to make a stand, to be clear, to call evil, evil, sin, sin, speak truth to power, but do it with love and compassion and mercy and grace. Declare to the world that is living as if God doesn't exist. Declare to them the reality of eternity. And a God who loves them and died for them. Uh, God, I pray that we would carry that mantle and live that way. Give us courage today. We need courage today, God. Give us courage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.